And while they're being dismissed, I have a confession to make. It's a big one. I started listening to Christmas music. I gave in. Costco won. It's not even, I couldn't hold off till Thanksgiving. When is the normal time to listen to Christmas music? Now, before you get too crazy, okay, uh, or, or think I'm a little crazy, before you get carried away, um, I really only listen to Charlie Brown Christmas, so it's more soundtracky than it is actual Christmas music. So um, be a little gentle with me. Hey, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. Chapter 21, you'll find it on page 1,687 in the Bible in the pew in front of you. Now, have you ever noticed that in some novels, at the end of the story, just as all the loose ends seem to have been wrapped up by the author, some authors will include a short chapter called an epilogue. Have you ever noticed that? And, and an epilogue is an author's way of kind of telling you, hey, weeks, months, years, decades, a, a certain time after everything's nice and tidy, uh, you know, everything is closed up. This is kind of what's happened in the life of the characters. And, and it's probably a marketing ploy to get you to think about the next book that they're going to write and get you to buy it, right? Well, when I was working at a Christian bookstore when I was living in uh, Spokane, Washington, um, I got uh, hooked on this book series um, it was a really cool uh, military series with a Christian perspective, and it was co-authored by retired Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. Now, the series is about a Marine, go figure, Oliver North was a Marine, right, um, who is tasked to take out the world's most vicious terrorists, only to have his plans and his life put into jeopardy by those who were in, uh, had political ambitions and who were in charge over him. It's actually kind of unique because in part of the story, uh, Oliver North writes himself into the book. The main character actually meets Oliver North in the book. It's kind of fun. Uh, now, uh, because the book was co-authored by a high-ranking military veteran, there are a lot of details in this book that make it seem as though you're reading a mission brief and not a piece of fiction. It's actually pretty cool, like of all the military technology that they write into it, it's so real. Now, at the end of this first book, as the story wraps up, the authors tease you in the epilogue and actually make you feel as if this book is actually a true story cleverly disguised as a novel. I remember at the end of this book, I was thinking, this has to be real. And so I wasted a good number of hours going to the internet and going to the Google and trying to look up to find out how much of this is true, because that's just how well written it was. And the epilogue made you think, hmm, are they giving away trade secrets here? Now, as we wrap up, or as we wrapped up the gospel of Mark last week, we kind of ended on a cliff, didn't we? On a cliffhanger, just kind of Mark just drops off. And, and I want to include my own epilogue of sorts. As we closed out the last two chapters of the Gospel of Mark, we left Peter in a bad place, did we not? He's in quite a mess. This was the guy. Peter was the guy who first declared with gusto, Jesus, you are the Christ. 
And it was at that point that Jesus says, I shall call you not Simon, but Peter. And upon this rock, this confession of faith, I will build my church, right? And then we also saw that it was Peter who said, Jesus, everyone may fail you, but not this guy, right? And what happens? He bombed big time, right? Big old F on the, on the test of faithfulness, right? Three times he denied Jesus and with such gusto. Sadly, in Mark's gospel, we get this feeling that, that Peter's an utter failure, do we not? No, I don't want to come across as saying that Mark's gospel is somehow deficient or incomplete or flawed. I'm not saying that. After all, Mark is most likely writing the gospel from Peter's point of view. Did you know that? That when you read Mark, it's actually kind of Peter's story of the things that happen. It's his account. And no doubt that Peter, as he's retelling the story to Mark and Mark's writing it down, he probably still feels a little bad about how he denied Jesus and how he wasn't as bold or as courageous as he wanted to be and as Jesus needed him to be, you know? I would guess that eventually this memory of his failure would actually be turned into a strong motivator for his faithfulness. Because if you know anything about the story of Peter, he ends up giving his very life as a martyr for his Lord and Savior, his best friend, Jesus. Now, with that being said, I want us to look and see what happens to Peter after Jesus' resurrection. I believe that there are several key lessons that you and I can learn about failure from an interaction that Jesus has with one of his close friends. And it's in how Jesus restores Peter that we can find God's lessons for failure in our own lives. In fact, the big idea I believe that God wants for us to consider today, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The big idea I believe is this. Just because you fail, that does not make you a failure. Amen? Just because you fail, this does not make you a failure. Now, in order to understand this, we have to look at the end of the story, the end of the Gospels from the Gospel of John. So would you please stand with me as our way of honoring God's word and follow along as I read Peter's epilogue from John chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, 
It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, before we unpack some lessons on failure, I want to mention a couple things. First is the idea of numerology in the Bible. Numerology is the understanding or the study of numbers and particularly in the scriptures. Now, first, there may be some who are tempted to apply special or secret meaning to details in the Bible that perhaps the biblical authors and the Holy Spirit never intended for us in the first place. One of the areas in the Bible that I think is easy to do this with are numbers. Now, some numbers do play a greater significance. However, the danger, though, of trying to assign too much meaning to numbers is that you can get quickly caught up in trying to decipher some secret codes, like when is the Lord returning, when's the end of the world, all of those things. And let me just tell you, many people have been doing that throughout the years, and it's been a vain pursuit. Remember a number of years ago, someone had a big billboard, Jesus is returning like October 21st? It did not happen, and that's because they look at secret, hidden codes, meanings in Scripture, and people do that with numbers a lot, and it's easy to do that with numbers. Now, with that being said, while it can be dangerous, okay, um, to try to add too much meaning to numbers, there are some numbers in the Bible that do have significance. For instance, the number seven. Many people consider the number seven to be the number of completion. After all, God completed the world in seven days, right? 
The number 40 is also a number that has special meaning in scriptures in that we see that it rained on the earth for how many days? 40 days. How many um, years did, or how many days did the spies get to spy out the land of Cana? 40 days. How many years did Israel have to wander in the wilderness because their lack of faith? One year for each day, 40 years, right? How many days was Jesus fasting in the wilderness and tempted by Satan? 40 days. There are some significance to numbers. And the number three is also considered to be a significant number. There are three persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, and Jesus was in the belly of the grave for three days. And Jesus himself makes a comparison between him and Jonah in three days. Friends, the number three has significance in our story today. If you'll recall from our time in Mark's gospel, and Peter records it as well, Peter denied Jesus how many times? Three times. In the story we just read, this is the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples. And now that he's having this breakfast meal, Jesus has a dialogue with Peter where he asks Peter three times, do you love me? And three times he commands him to feed my sheep. There's significance in the three that John is using here. Now, John is not trying to give us some secret meaning behind the number, as if if you take three times three times three, that's 27. There's 27 books in the New Testament. It must be ordained that way, as some people have a habit of doing with numbers. I don't think John is doing that. He's not giving us some secret code to decipher. Rather, he's intentionally using this three repetitious structure in his text as a way of saying, pay attention. Look closely. John wants you and I to know that he's going to do something significant in the life of Peter. It's his way of saying to you and me, pay attention. There is a lesson to be learned here. So friends, whenever you see repeated numbers, first of all, what we must do is consider the context. Consider the context with which the number is given and see if there's anything in the story that's being said about this number and if it's repeated throughout text and then don't go too far beyond that. Don't start doing your own multiplication and division, okay? And let me tell you, anytime you take a number in the Bible and multiply it by something else inside or outside the Bible, you have gone way too far. And then if you pull out your calendars, right, or apps and try to synchronize things, you've taken it probably way farther than the Holy Spirit or the authors ever intended. And it's easy to go off on tangents, I believe that God would rather have you spend your time not trying to decipher a code or spend too much time with numbers in the scripture, and he would rather have you spend that time worshiping the Father and telling others how much Jesus loves them. Amen? Okay. Now, the second thing we have to understand is uh, about the original languages, okay? Friends, sometimes studying the original languages can be a huge blessing and benefit. Knowing what's going on with the words that are actually translated can be beneficial. Knowing how an author uses a particular word or nuances it can really help color in what's being said. But sometimes it gets in the way. 
And friends, in here, I believe that the language sometimes gets in the way. You see, when Jesus tells Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter replies, Lord, you know I love you. John, at the very first, the, the first two times he says that, uses two different words for love. He uses agape and phileo. Jesus says, Peter, or he says, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I phileo you, okay? And so the second time, do you agape, I phileo. And then the third time, Jesus changes and says, Peter, do you phileo? And Peter says, Lord, you know I phileo. And, and well-meaning commentators and well-meaning uh, uh, pastors try to uh, highlight the significance in Jesus using agape and, and phileo and then try to change it up. And while it would make for a really cool sermon, I don't think that's what John's doing here. Because here's the reason why I get that conviction. Agape and phileo can mean the same thing. Some people like to think that agape is like the heavenly love that God has for us, the perfect unconditional love, and phileo, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right, is more of the love between friends, okay? And so people try to nuance and play on this a lot, and they come up with all these great sermon illustrations on, on the depths of that. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong, okay? I'm just saying I'm not convinced that's what's happening here, okay? I think what John is doing is he's using two separate words for love to add variety in his writing. It's good grammar, folks. It's the same reason why you don't use the same word over and over again in the same sentence or in the same paragraph because it doesn't sound good to the ears, does it not? My wife, I love her. She's great. She proofreads a lot of my stuff and she's like, you've used the same word over and over and over and over and over again. And I've got to go back and change it to add some variety because it helps in reading. And I think that, that I, I'm convinced that that's what John's doing. If you want to be convinced otherwise, great, you can do that. We can still have fellowship and love Jesus together. Amen? I'm convinced it's for variety. And I think the, what John wants us to do is not get hung up on, is it agape or phileo and what's going on? I think John wants us to, to pay attention to what Jesus is doing to Peter. Okay? So let's not get hung up on numbers and not, let's not get hung up on grammar. Jesus wants to restore Peter and transform his failure into faithfulness. And he wants to do the same thing for you. If he desires to do this for Peter, he desires to do it for you and me. Amen? Amen. So friends, if you're taking notes, let's go to our first lesson about failure. And that is this. If you're writing it, take it down. If you fail, don't go back. If you fail, don't go back. When we opened up our story, we found the disciples hanging out in their home state of Galilee, right? They go back home. And after Jesus' death, they're not quite sure what to do with their lives. So what does Peter do? He falls back on the very thing that he knows. He falls back to doing the thing that he was doing before he had encountered Jesus. Before Jesus came to, to meet Peter, Jesus or Peter was a fisherman by trade. Did you know that? Of course you knew that. Because we went through the Gospel of Mark, right? And so what we find is that uh, verse 3 tells us that Peter says to his friends, I'm going fishing. <laughs> I think he was like, I, Jesus hasn't told me what to do, so I'm just going to go do what I know what to do. 
Now, how successful were Peter and his friends? It's like me, not very, right? I'm horrible at fishing. My livelihood depended on my fishing skills. (laughs) My wife and I and my kids would go hungry, okay? Uh, Perhaps they were a bit rusty. Maybe they just forgot how to fish, right? I, I don't think that that's what was happening. I think that they were unsuccessful because they weren't supposed to be fishing, They weren't supposed to be there doing that. And to prove this point, Jesus, who appears as a stranger, we were told in the text, they didn't recognize that it was Jesus. Jesus appears on the shoreline, and then what does he do? He gives them unsolicited fishing advice. And the advice that Jesus gives is counterintuitive to actually how you should fish. You fish at night when the bugs are active and the fish are biting. They had been doing it all night. They had caught zip, zero, squat. And here's this stranger says, throw the net on the other side. And you could see the eyes rolling. Who is this guy? And for whatever reason, they did it. At least, at least they had a measure of faith to listen to some stranger giving them bad fishing advice. Now, interestingly enough, This is not the first time this exact same scenario has happened. Last time it was Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Uh, James and Andrew are the sons of Zebedee, right? When Jesus first called them to discipleship, to come follow him, they were fishing. They caught nothing. And Jesus said the exact same thing, and the results were exactly the same results. They caught more fish than they thought was plausible. Now, I believe in this interaction, Jesus is saying to them, what on earth are you guys doing? I did not call you to remain fishermen. I called you to be my disciples. Stop doing what you're doing. I've called you to something else. And in fact, this is the last time in Scripture. Did you know this is the last time in Scriptures that we see any of the disciples Fishing. As far as we know, they never went back to it. Now, it's tempting for us, I think, when we have failed to be faithful to God, when we have given in to temptation and have sinned and feel, oh, so horrible and like an utter failure, I think we're tempted to go back to our old ways of living. Are we not? It's, it's tempting to fall back onto old habits. We're tempted to throw our hands up in the air and say, what is the point I think our failure has a way of paralyzing our relationship with God because we believe in all manner of lives when we have failed. I can only imagine the negative self-talk, the evil voices that were plaguing Peter's mind after his denials. He probably thought that he wasn't good enough for God. And I don't know if you've ever thought that you were good enough for God. And if he gave into these influences, to this inner talk, to this voice long enough, he probably would have abandoned his faith. But God had something else in mind for Peter. And he has something else in mind for you. Did you notice in our text, in verse 10, it says something very clearly. It says that Jesus, verse 9, already had the coals going and he already had fish on the fire. And yet he tells Simon Peter, go get the fish. It's not because he didn't have enough. We know that Jesus, all he needs is one fish, right? He's already fed thousands with with not a lot. 
So it's not like he needs more fish for a bigger breakfast. I think he tells Peter to go in the boat to get the fish is because he's reminding Peter of what he has called him to. He's called him to a different life. Friends, when you said yes to Jesus, he's called you to a different life. If you fail, don't go back. Don't go backwards. Don't throw your hands up. Keep pressing on in the Lord. Friends, uh, the next thing, if you're taking notes, if you fail, Jesus wants you to grow. If you fail, Jesus wants you to grow. When Jesus restores Peter after his failure, he doesn't want Peter to go back to the same point in his life where he was at when he denied Jesus. He wants him to grow beyond that. He wants Peter to be stronger in his faith so that when the time comes again, where he is tempted to abandon Jesus again, because it will come up again in Peter's life. Peter will be arrested. Peter will be beaten. Peter will be flogged. Peter will be threatened with death. Jesus knows this. He doesn't want Peter to be in the same place in his faith where Peter was able to deny. He wants Peter to grow so he won't deny again. When Jesus has this dialogue with Peter, it's interesting. He changes Peter from a fisher of men to a shepherd of sheep, right? He tells him, tend my sheep, care for my lambs. He wants the disciples, he wants you and me to go beyond simply catching people. He wants us to care for people. Nowhere else in scripture do we hear of the disciples or any follower of Jesus Christ being referred to as fish or fishermen. Did you know that? It's shepherd and sheep. And if God has called you to follow him, he wants you to shepherd people. It's not just my job description. You don't get to go with the excuse, we pay a pastor to shepherd people. If you, when you, when you graduate to glory, you don't get to use that as an excuse for not caring for people. You don't get to say, Jesus, my job was catching them. It's the pastor's job to clean them. Thanks for giving me the dirty work. Y'all get all the fun, right? I get the mess. I'm kidding. We are all called to shepherd people. If you are a parent, you're called to shepherd your children. If you're an aunt or an uncle, you're called to shepherd your nieces and your nephews. If you're a neighbor, you're called to shepherd your neighbors, whether you like them or not. I know some of you, that's hard to hear. You have other plans for your neighbors. If you fail, Jesus doesn't want you to go back to the point where you were when you failed because you don't grow. He wants you to learn from your failure and become stronger in your faith. Amen? Because here's the thing, friends. He still has greater things for you to do. Paul teaches us in Romans 8, 28, that God works all things for good and his purposes for those who follow Jesus Christ. This means he wants to take your failures and make something good out of them. Something that causes you to grow in your faith and causes you to do good for others. So friends, while it may feel bad failing, okay, I'm just gonna say, I'm gonna raise my hand and says, say, man, it stinks to fail the Lord. It hurts. Emotionally, spiritually, it hurts. 
moving beyond my failure doesn't have to. Amen? Jesus is calling Peter and he's calling you and I to look beyond our failure and to look into our future. And God wants to use your failure, I think in the same way that he used Peter's failure, as motivation to faithfulness. And to faithfulness. Friends, I think while we're not supposed to wallow in self-pity and guilt, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. So no pity parties. All right? Stop it. Okay? No pity parties. Please. While we're not to have a pity party, though, I think what we can do is we can use those times of failing as a way of saying, I don't ever want to feel like that again. And as a motivation, as a motivator to remain faithful. Friends, let your faithfulness ultimately define who you are, not your failure. And lastly, friends, if you fail, Jesus commands you to follow. If you fail, Jesus commands you to follow. At the end of verse 19, at the end of this difficult dialogue between Jesus and Peter, Jesus doesn't lessen the command or lower the bar for him, does he not? Even asking him the third time, we're told by Peter that it hurt his heart. Jesus didn't lessen it for him. He still kept the same exact expectation. And if you go back to the original Greek, this is one of those points in our story where it's really good, you'll notice that the words for follow me are written in the present active imperative. Can you say that? Present active imperative. Sounds really cool and smart, doesn't it? This is the form of an emphatic command. It's not merely a suggestion or a good idea. It is a direct command. Jesus tells Peter, in essence, be the man that I know you can be and follow me. It's interesting to note that what Jesus does with Peter here is if you read the text closely, he doesn't call him Peter, does he? He calls him Simon, son of John. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, stop it, Peter. Stop trying to do it in your own strength. Stop trying to be that old guy that was arrogant and proud. Did you notice how he also said, do you love me more than these? It, wasn't it Peter who said, even if these fail you? Jesus is doing something in Peter's life here, something significant. He's not lowering the bar for Peter. He's not lowering the expectations. He's saying, Peter, be the rock. You're trying to be Simon, son of John, I said you are Peter. Be Peter and follow me. And not only that, but, but Jesus tells Peter, it's gonna cost you, buddy. It's gonna cost you. It's gonna cost you your very life. But even in your death, you're gonna glorify me. Peter, follow me. 
Friends, even if you fail, Jesus still commands you to follow him. Jesus still commands you to sacrifice. Jesus still commands you to give all that you are and all that you have for him. He never lessens his expectation. He never lessens the call. And what he's saying when he does that is, stop it. Stop trying to do it on your own. Stop trying to do it in your own strength. And let me do it. Follow me. Trust me. Rely on me. And I will turn your faithfulness, your, excuse me, your failure into faithfulness. So friends, you can overcome failure. You don't have to have a pity party for yourself anymore. Because God desires, God desires, and as much as he desired Peter to restore him after his failure into faithfulness, God always longs to restore your failure into faithfulness. So friends, if you fail, don't go back. Don't go back to your old life lifestyle to old habits. Grow in your relationship. Use it as an opportunity to grow in your relationship with the Lord. And know that God still commands us to follow him. He doesn't lessen the bar for us because he knows when we trust him, when we truly trust him, we will remain faithful to him. Amen? Amen. Friends, would you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all that you've done in our lives. And you have this epilogue in Peter's life where we see you transform his failure into faithfulness, where you don't just leave him as a mess, but you restore him into wholeness. And God, you still have that same desire for each one of us. And so God, while failing hurts, growing out of it doesn't have to. And that we can use our failure as motivation to be faithful in our future. And so God, I just pray that everyone here would stop beating themselves up when they fail. But they would come to you repentant with a genuine heart of sorrow and sorriness. That we would just come to you and say, I messed up. I denied you through a sin. I denied you through a choice. Forgive me and help me learn from this to grow beyond it and to continue to follow the future you have for me because it is good. God, I pray that would become our prayer whenever we mess up and that we would continue to grow through our failure and learn what it means to be faithful in all we say and in all we do, with all we are and all we have. And all God's people said, amen.